Welcome to Health Now, WebMD's podcast about health, wellness, and you. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We've got a great episode for you today. Let's get started. It's almost Mother's Day weekend. Maybe you've booked a table at a great brunch spot to celebrate mom. Nothing beats a good meal and good company. But if you're working on health goals that have to do with food, you might want to know which items on that menu are better choices than others. We'll get to that. But first, if you're in one of those moods where you're like, I deserve it after the week I had, please don't take my mimosa away from me. Relax. We'll tell you which dishes are healthy and tasty, too. First up, the bad news. Looking at you, French toast. Sure, you get a little protein from the egg, but the rest of it is all the kind of carbs that give carbs a bad name. Lots of sugar, and you can really go to town with whipped cream and maple syrup. To get it a bit out of the danger zone, you could use whole grain bread, go easy on the butter or oil it's fried in, and top it with fruit. The same goes for pancakes and waffles, by the way. Swap out those toppings if you have health on your mind. Or maybe you are eyeing the Eggs Benedict. It's definitely a brunch staple. And while the eggs provide protein and the English muffin is okay, the bad guy here is the high-fat hollandaise sauce. You can ask the waiter to go light on the sauce or swap it out for some avocado so you still get some creaminess. How about a side of home fries or hash browns? It's a plant-based food, right? Well, as much as we all love potatoes, if they're deep fried, you make it a lot more fat than you bargained for. This is a good dish to make at home, where you can control how much oil or butter you use, or bake them instead of frying them. Next, there's quiche. Eggs, milk, heavy cream, and cheese, along with pie crust, are all high in fat. You can make it a bit healthier by adding veggies like spinach, but that won't get this dish out of the worst category. Why not go for a frittata instead? It doesn't have a crust, and you can go heavy on the vegetables there, too. What about a good old tuna melt? Tuna is a good source of omega-3 fatty acids, protein, selenium, and vitamin D. But the melt part, the cheese, drags this one down. And some places fry their bread or make it panini style, which just adds more calories. Your best bet is to just go with tuna and skip the cheese. Now, here's a safe choice, granola. Or is it? It depends. Granola can be high in fat and sugar, especially when you get it from a restaurant. So keep the portions small. Are you planning on ordering a mimosa or a Bloody Mary along with your dish? For some people, it's the best part of brunch. You may want to factor in the calories from the alcohol, though. Plus, it might make you loosen up so you eat a lot more than you wanted to. Now for the better health choices. You can probably guess some of these. For instance, steel-cut oatmeal with nuts and fruit is unquestionably healthy. Just skip the brown sugar or syrup. Or you could order an omelet, maybe even one made with egg whites and lots of vegetables. Just go easy on the high-fat, high-calorie items like cheese, sausage, or ham. And shrimp and grits can also be a healthy choice, as long as it's not heavy on cheese, bacon, or salt. Or you could have a bagel, preferably a whole-grain one, with lox, which is cold-smoked salmon. Keep the cream cheese to a thin layer. Now when you're out to celebrate mom or just enjoy a relaxing morning with friends, you can make smart choices and still enjoy your brunch. It's been almost 20 years since health officials declared that measles had been eliminated from the U.S. But as most of you likely know by now, that period is over. The U.S. is in the middle of a record number of cases of the disease, more than 750 reported just in the first few months of this year. 
We've asked WebMD's chief medical editor, Dr. Michael Smith, to talk to us about the outbreak and what you need to know about protecting yourself and your family. Hey, Dr. Smith. Hi there. Let's start with the basics. What exactly is measles? Yeah, well, it's a virus, actually a very contagious virus that can pass from person to person, usually through coughing or sneezing. And so if one person has it, up to 90% of people close to that person who are not immune will also become infected. So keep in mind, too, though, that the virus can live outside the body for a couple of hours. So someone comes along where an infected person was two hours later, and they can still be infected. And as is the case with most viruses, you're contagious and can spread it around before you even have symptoms, really before you even know anything is going on. So that's another reason it can really spread so quickly. So after being exposed to the virus, about a week or two after someone is infected, typical symptoms are high fever, cough, runny nose, red watery eyes. There's a typical symptom we call coplic spots, white spots in the mouth, but then you get a flat red rash, starts at your, your forehead, spreads all the way down to your feet. Very high fever, really can be over 104, so that alone potentially That's dangerous. serious. Yeah. Young children under 5, even adults over 20, tend to be more likely to get serious complications, some of which are really even life-threatening. So, for example, as many as 1 in 20 kids will get pneumonia, which is the most common cause of death from measles in young children. About 1 in 1,000 kids will get what we call encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain. Obviously quite serious, and about one to two kids out of every thousand will die. So this is not a light viral infection, potentially deadly. really wasn't that long ago, as you were just talking about, that hundreds of people die every year from the measles virus. Before the measles vaccine program was started in 1963, estimated three to four million people got measles every year just in the U.S., Wow, million, three to four million. Absolutely. Tens of thousands hospitalized, a thousand with the encephalitis that we're talking about, and about four to 500 people died every single year. So the fact that we're seeing a rise in measles cases now is, is more than troubling. This is serious business and obviously extremely contagious. Absolutely. Um, so obviously there's been a lot of news about this lately, or people have been hearing a lot about it. What's behind that? What's driving this, uh, these measles stories that we're hearing in the news so much? You know, as you mentioned, measles was eliminated in the U.S. in 2000. We actually thought it would have been eliminated even sooner, but we realized the one measles vaccine the kids were getting was not enough to keep them immune for long enough. So once we started giving them a second dose, then we eradicated the measles virus from the U.S. However, now we've started seeing a rise in cases much bigger rise recently. You mentioned like over 750 cases this year. So we're seeing this rise in, in cases actually all over the world. And so that's why we're starting to hear a lot more about it. So what has really been behind this, this rise in the last, even in the most noticeable in the mm -hmm. last couple of months? Well, the lack of vaccination among small pockets of communities, right? Small number of parents choosing to not vaccinate their children. That is the primary reason we're starting to see a rise in measles cases. Because it is so contagious, you know, one kid gets measles and it can spread pretty quickly, especially among a community of unvaccinated children. Now, most of these people who are getting measles are unvaccinated. 
However, some of them have been vaccinated, so you're probably wondering how is that? Right, that's well, not very reassuring. Yeah, but. the chance there is a chance that your immunity from the vaccination can decrease over time. However, when we have a strong vaccination program across the entire country, it protects everyone. So that's why even if your immunity does decrease before, we still weren't seeing cases. But now that the numbers of unvaccinated children are increasing, we're starting to see more cases. Plus, there's one other factor at play, worldwide travel. So if someone could go to another country, acquire measles, and because they don't even have symptoms for a couple of weeks, come back and start spreading it that way, especially if they're exposing themselves to unvaccinated children. I see. So maybe countries with maybe a little bit less robust vaccination, it just comes back and exactly. travels with them. Once it was eradicated here does not mean that it was eliminated in all other countries. All right. So how would you know if you are truly protected from measles? So if you've had both doses of the vaccine, you really can consider yourself protected against the virus. If someone is exposed to the measles virus and they've had the vaccine, they should be in good shape. Now, there are certain people who need to be extra careful, women of childbearing age particularly, because you cannot get the vaccination while you are pregnant. So women, it's worth their time to talk to their doctor, make sure that you are protected. If you're not sure about your vaccination record, there is actually a blood test your doctor can do to confirm that you are immune to the measles virus. Most people, that's not necessary because you have some proof that you've actually had the two doses of the vaccine. I know there's been a lot of talk about if you got your vaccine before X year, then you probably need to go back or get double checked. Is there a Well, there was a period frame? of time shortly after the measles vaccine came on the market, like in the 60s, where the efficacy of the vaccine is questionable. Right? So if you did receive the vaccine during that period of time, it might be worth actually you getting even a second dose. And just so the average person, if you're really concerned, you don't have your shot record, you're not sure if you did get two doses of the measles vaccine, you can get another dose. Your second dose is fine. It's not harmful. It's not going to hurt at you. All. Not okay. at all. And it will give you that extra added protection just in case that you're not immune. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so... One trend that I think has been coming up a lot on the internet, I've certainly seen it on social media a little bit, is the measles party, sort of like the chicken pox parties where yeah. everybody goes, gets infected, and you assume that that somehow inoculates you from that time forward. Should you take a kid to a measles party? What is the, what's the logic there? Yeah, terrible idea. Okay. Absolutely don't do <laughs> That's that. what I thought. <laughs> well, let's talk about why. So with chicken pox, even though I still did not recommend it then, Theoretically, it makes a tiny bit more sense because a kid who gets the chicken pox typically much less severe illness than an adult who gets the chicken pox. So the theory was if the kid gets it as a kid, they'll be fine after a few days, preventing it from happening as an adult. The problem is, well, of course, now there's a chicken pox vaccine. So really, we don't need to expose our kids to chicken pox parties. <laughs> Why the measles is so different is that the severe complications from measles are more likely to occur in kids under five. So if you're taking a child to a measles party, you're really exposing them to a high risk of complications. So it's just not advisable. 
The vaccine is by far the best, most effective way to prevent the measles for a lifetime. And just so we know, evidence shows that it is absolutely safe. All right. It's good to get behind the headlines and get some details on how to protect yourself. Dr. Smith, thank you. (laughs) My pleasure. Maybe you've seen those social media posts of stars wearing sheet masks on planes before a big red carpet event or just chilling out. The sheet mask hashtag has more than half a million posts on Instagram alone. Or perhaps you've tried masks that come in a tube or a jar, maybe made with clay or even charcoal. You might even whip up a homemade mask yourself from honey, egg whites, avocado, or other ingredients from your kitchen. So do the masks help your skin? And with so many to choose from, where do you start? WebMD blogger and Medford, Oregon dermatologist Dr. Laurel Garrity is here to talk about it. Dr. Garrity, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start with sheet masks. Are you a fan? You know, as a dermatologist and a scientist, I'm probably not supposed to love therapies that are not backed by hard science. And the research really does lack far behind the trend of masks, including sheet masks, because we just don't have a lot of scientific study to support their use. But that said, there is something about sheet masks and other masks that really does make some scientific sense to me. And that's the concept of occlusion, where you're trapping an active ingredient or medicine against the skin to make it more powerful. And dermatologists actually rely on that concept all the time. Um, In our clinics, when we're doing allergy testing, we rely on that concept. Or when we're treating patients with severe dermatitis, where we apply a medicine and then wrap it up with plastic wrap or something else to trap it in place because it can turn an ordinary medicine or topical into something more powerful and effective. So in that sense, sheet masks do make some scientific sense to me, even though they're not backed by a lot of research. And I actually really enjoy them. I do them pretty regularly, partly to, you know, keep up on the trends and see what my patients may be using, but also because I enjoy them. I think that masks have really become a part of this concept of self-care lately. It's sort of like a mini spa treatment that anyone can do at home with just a, you know, two or five or six dollars for a little sheet mask. And it's become a nice way to kind of relax and recharge. So I think there's value in that therapy. And I know I enjoy them, but I'm looking forward to science to catch, um, looking forward to science catching up a little bit on how much they can really offer our skin. And there's also, there's K-beauty or Korean beauty, another hot trend, lots of sheet masks out there, but also other kinds, including a rubber mask and masks that even have gold dust in them. Are, there, are those something that you're seeing in, in your patients as well? You know, I do. Masks are a hot topic in general. I feel like ev- a lot of people are out there dabbling and trying different kinds, including those rubber masks, which are also called modeling masks. Those are kind of fun to use because they sort of rubberize once you apply them on your skin. They go on like a gel and then they harden up where you can sort of peel them off as if they're, you know, like a like a, a Halloween costume mask. Um, they're supposed to reveal a whole new you afterward. And I don't know that they really do that, but people enjoy the experience of using those. If a mask has gold in it, it's got to be luxurious, right? Um, and the gold mask looks so beautiful when we put them on the skin. It's almost like we turn ourselves into these sparkling Olympic god statues is what our faces <laughs> can look like. Um, And over the centuries, gold has been used for many therapeutic purposes, actually as an oral medicine and as a topical, including for kinds of arthritis. But dermatologists recognize that gold ingredients can actually cause a lot of skin allergies. In fact, it might be second only to nickel among the metals as a very, very common cause of skin allergies. So as a topical ingredient with mass, it may actually do more harm than good. So that's just an important thing that dermatologists like people to be aware of. So there's so many different masks out there of all different kinds and ingredients. 
and people are really experimenting. There's a lot of great interest in this area. And to your point about some of the <laughs> some of the more um, maybe outlandish claims, um, what are some of the perks of using the facial masks? What can they do for us? And also maybe what's a little bit hyped up? Yeah, well, I think realistically what we can expect from masks is a temporary boost in our hydration of our skin. So that m- might play a role for some of us re- with really dry skin that we're having a hard time keeping hydrated. Um, for some people, they may want a benefit for their acne. So certain ingredients are known. Um, to have a benefit for acne, things like salicylic acid or glycolic acid, possibly charcoal or clay, you know, that might help to declog pores a little bit or might use a little mild acid to help fight acne. So I would expect those benefits to be small, but they may be there. They may be real because we know those active ingredients can be helpful. And for some people, a little skin rejuvenation or exfoliation could be expected from masks, where some of the gentle acids that might be found in masks, either sheet masks or other topical masks, may help to, you know, get help exfoliate and get off that fine outer layer of skin that's always trying to slough. So after we use them, it's totally possible that we, our skin may look a little smoother, maybe um, be perceived as a little more refreshed or rejuvenated. So, but I do expect all those benefits from masks to be mild and probably temporary. But you may not necessarily see a whole new you as you, <laughs> correct, as some people might want you to believe. And we've talked a lot of, so far about the different types of masks to choose from. What are your tips on how to choose what type you might need or what ingredients to look for? And on the flip side, uh, maybe some masks that aren't right for you. Right. Well, I think it's good to keep in mind your skin type. So if someone has very dry, sensitive, eczema-prone skin, masks may not be a good idea at all. They may just be more likely to cause irritation, redness, and a skin reaction than anything else. So masks are not for everyone. And I don't want anyone to feel like masks are a must to have healthy skin because they're not. Um, You can have healthy skin without masks. But if you have dry skin um, or you do tolerate different topicals, you might try a mask that contains nice hydrating or humectant ingredients such as hyaluronic acid or a nice hydrating soothing clay. Some of those products can just restore some moisture and hydration to our skin and help to trap water against the skin to leave it feeling more hydrated. So those can have a benefit. Whereas if your skin is more oily, on the other hand, you might choose a mask that has some gentle acids in it with ingredients like glycolic acid, salicylic acid, possibly a purifying clay mass or even the charcoal that you mentioned. And so those in theory may have a little bit of a benefit for helping to refine our pores to help um, remove some of the oil or sebum from our our pores through a gentle exfoliation. So those might help the oilier or more acne prone skin types to a certain degree. And then for those of us who are just looking for a little refresh, a little bit of exfoliation or skin rejuvenation to help our skin look smoother or perhaps get a little tightening of the fine lines that that may be temporary. I do like the masks that have ingredients like salicylic acid or glycolic acid or even lactic acid because those are all known gentle exfoliants and we find those in a lot of -of over-the-counter products, but they should have a benefit for lightly exfoliating our skin and offering some mild skin rejuvenation to leave it looking a little fresher and brighter. But the, you know, the, Buyer beware definitely applies. I mean, skin masks absolutely have the power to cause problems on our skin as well. So it's important to listen to your skin. If you're developing redness, irritation, rash, or peeling after using a mask that is significant, you it may not be the right mask for you. It may be a product for you to avoid. Let's talk a little bit about quality and price difference um, when it comes to masks. Obviously, there are some low-cost ones that you can find at the drugstore. And there's the fancier versions that you might get at a spa or something like that. Um, are they are they 
all that different? Or do you do you kind of get what you pay for with a face mask? You know, I think it's really hard to know. This is kind of like the Wild West of cosmeceuticals, where, you know, you may pay one price for one mask, and it might not be superior to another one that's at a completely different price point. So it's a little bit of trial and error. And some of the inexpensive masks that contain a lot of fragrances might be just as annoying or irritating to the skin as expensive masks that contain fragrances. So we don't know that price point is necessarily a reflection on quality. Certainly brands that are well known might be more inclined to do skin testing on their products or formulate masks that might be more likely to be gentle and non-irritating. So some of the common skincare brands that we might see in the drugstore that we associate with eczema creams and other things may do a little bit more as far as skin testing. And those might actually be a little safer because maybe they've had the money or the resources to put some testing or um, science behind their masks. So it's it's a lot of trial and error. It's hard to say, hey, this is a great one to use and this one isn't. It's kind of like we we just figure it out as we go. And if we find one that we love, it's totally okay to stick with it no matter what the price point may be. How about the masks you can make at home? I know there's lots of recipes online that you can use ingredients from your kitchen uh, to sort of whip one up. Do these work just as well? You know, it's tough to say because there's so many variabilities. And certainly we could make some masks at home if we're the crafty type who likes to make concoctions in the kitchen. Um, and I think in theory, the mask that contains some, some fruit that is sort of mashed up or perhaps some milk ingredients, if we tolerate that, may have a benefit for skin rejuvenation because of the gentle acids that they may naturally contain that might have a benefit for skin. On the flip side, they might be irritating. So I think it's good to listen to your skin if any ingredient is causing you trouble. But there's so many home remedies that people love to use. And in theory, they might help. Um, honey, honey-based products actually can fight germs on the skin. So some people rely on a little honey in their mask if their skin is upset. Um, others rely on baking soda, almost like as a little gentle exfoliation or a skin refresher, refresher. So there are many different ingredients that in theory might have a benefit, but it's just hard to know what's going to, what your skin is going to agree with, what's safe. Um, and it gets kind of messy. So for me, I go with a fruit smoothie or, and expect that to probably have more benefit than the home fruit mask instead. But everybody, you know, if you like to do it and it's fun, I see no problem with it as long as it doesn't cause the skin irritation. Whether you drink it or put it on your skin, you're going to get those nutrients some way. So, <laughs> so that's good. Right. How often would you recommend that someone use a mask? Is it possible to overdo it? I think I definitely think it's possible to overdo it with masks. If you're using them every day, sometimes that might just be too much active ingredient against the skin, whatever that ingredient is. So every mask is different. Every person's different. But in general, I feel that once every week or two is totally appropriate for use of masks, or when you just want that little home spa treatment to kind of relax and unwind while you're, you know, reading a good book or whatever it may be. And what's maybe expecting too much for a mask to do for your skin? Are we, we shouldn't necessarily look for miracles, right? That is definitely true. I wouldn't expect anything much from a mask other than some temporary hydration, a little exfoliation or some mild skin rejuvenation, and maybe a temporary mild acne benefit. We just can't expect the world for masks. We should just enjoy the experience of them. And if you want medical-grade results, there's so much more that a board-certified dermatologist could offer you as far as prescription topicals and other treatments that can be far more beneficial and efficacious and, and proven by science compared to masks. Well, some great tips for the next time you're looking to use a face mask and indulge a little bit in some relaxation. Dr. Garrity, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our Tweak of the Week. Keep an eye on your headphone volume. 
Whether you use the kind that go over your ears or fit just inside, sound that's too loud can damage your hearing. Here's an easy way to tell if your levels are too high. Try to have a conversation while your headphones are playing. If you can't understand someone who's speaking from an arm's length away, you need to turn the volume down. A good rule of thumb for everyday use is the 60-60 rule. Keep the volume at a max of 60% for a total of 60 minutes a day. If you need to listen to something for longer than an hour, it's best to take the headphones off and keep the volume low. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next time.